This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Jesus said to the people, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I'm getting reacquainted with Martin Luther in my new role as a Lutheran pastor, I have come to realize that uh, Luther liked preaching on the Old Testament very much. He preached a lot of sermons on the Old Testament, and that stands in some contrast to modern-day preachers in the Lutheran tradition and in my Episcopal tradition and in other uh, Protestant traditions. We tend to preach much more on the gospel. So, living into my new Lutheran identity, I'm going to preach on the Old Testament today and on one of Luther's favorite pieces of the Old Testament, which he puts it right at the front of the small and the large catechism, and that is the Ten Commandments. As a child of the late 1950s, I have a rather distinct memory of going to the movie theater with my parents to see Cecil B. DeMille's epic film, The Ten Commandments. Although the movie seems almost comically campy to me now, to a young boy of that generation, it was magisterial and awe-inspiring. To be sure, I had learned the Decalogue in Sunday school directly out of my grandfather's copy of Luther's small catechism handed down to me by my father. But it was Hollywood that, for better or worse, etched this piece of the biblical narrative 
in my imagination. Now, what is less well-known about DeMille's production of that classic film is that following its 1956 release, DeMille joined forces with a state court judge by the name of E.J. Rugemer to promote the film by erecting granite monuments of the Ten Commandments all over the country. Perhaps you've seen some of them. Judge Rugemer had founded an organization called the Fraternal Order of Eagles, whose aim was to combat juvenile delinquency by doing religious education around the Ten Commandments. DeMille, however, saw a marketing opportunity. And so he bankrolled the Fraternal Order of Eagles to manufacture dozens and dozens of gigantic granite monuments. And then he enlisted the likes of Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner to do promotional photo shoots at the monument's installations, thus transforming a sincere, if naive, program of religious education into a Hollywood public relations campaign. The story doesn't end there. In the decades since, these granite monuments themselves have become the focus of intense public controversy as many of them were installed in quite public places like state capitals. Just as DeMille saw a marketing opportunity for his film, politicians around the country jumped on the bandwagon, endorsing the erection of these monuments in governmental spaces for their own political purposes. And so, as the story unfolds, one such monument, erected in Austin, Texas, of all places, became the subject of one of the leading Supreme Court decisions on the Establishment Clause. You remember the Establishment Clause. Congress shall pass no law establishing a religion. Well, that case's name was Van Orton versus Perry, and it was decided in 2005 and in the opinion, a sharply divided court held that the monument's placement on the state capitol grounds did not encroach upon a constitutionally appropriate separation of church and state. It was a divided opinion. The reasoning was rather muddled, but that was the ultimate outcome. It was okay. Now, Here's the thing. When you examine these granite monuments more closely, as Harvard scholar Michael Coogan did in his little book on the Ten Commandments, you can see just how far we have come from the actual text from Exodus and its underlying story to what's depicted on these granite monuments. The language of the commandments on the monuments is carefully edited and sanitized and freed from any theological complexity or nuance. Gone, for example, is any reference to the Hebrew people or to God's self-identification as the one who brought them, quote, out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slaves. 
Instead, the commandments are presented as abstract, simplified moral principles and are positioned under, get this, a very large image of an American bald eagle holding in its talons an equally prominent, you guessed it, American flag. Now, I don't need to tell you that there's considerable irony here. Think about it for a moment. Words from a compassionate God to the Hebrew people about the dangers of chasing after idols and making graven images of false gods and about the life-giving possibilities of living in right relationship with God and neighbor have somehow been hijacked by Hollywood movie moguls and Texas politicians and made into its own pernicious idol, only to be used as one more blunt instrument in an ongoing culture war about national and religious identity. If you don't believe me, consider this for a second. A recent poll shows that while 76% of Americans strongly believe that our Constitution ought to allow for the Ten Commandments to be displayed publicly, less than 25% of them can name even four of the commandments. It seems that we want the power to assert our views against other people, even when we're not sure exactly what they are, much less what they mean. Now, one of the challenges for us as a church is to take on the hard work of redirecting this cultural conversation and retelling our foundational stories in fresh and compelling ways. And perhaps even more importantly, embodying these stories authentically in our own communities of faith. When we place the Ten Commandments back in the broader context of the Exodus wilderness narrative, we begin to see that these ten holy words are not, in fact, just abstract moral principles, but rather they arise out of a living relationship between God and his people and are an invitation from God to identity and purpose, a framework for flourishing as a community. The words that begin, if you go back to look at our text this morning, the words that begin God's announcement of the commandments are crucial. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. By omitting this language, DeMille's monuments obscure the fact that these commandments are rooted not just in God's power, but in his merciful nature and liberating mission. God hears his people's cries, sensitive to their suffering. He frees them from captivity in Egypt, leads them through the wilderness, feeds them, raises up for them prophetic leaders, and now assures this once bereft group of inconsequential slaves that they are indeed his treasured possession, who will find life if only they embrace and embody these covenantal words. 
You see, this backstory, this context, is crucial to understanding what the Ten Commandments mean. Seen this way, the commandments are not a mere list of don't do this and don't do that rules, but rather they are a constitution for a new people, a community that chooses to organize itself not around the idols of wealth and power and prestige, but around right relationships, relationships with God and relationships with neighbor. Indeed, as I tried to explain in my children's message, the Decalogue has this architecture that reflects these commitments. The text of the Ten Commandments literally begins with God, verse 1, and ends with neighbor, verse 17. And it is in the space between these two poles, between God and neighbor, between a radical commitment to God and compassion for the neighbor, that we are invited to live in between those poles. But the order is important. We start with God. As the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it, it is important to get it right about Yahweh in order to get it right about our neighbors. And just as the commandments fall into two tablets about God relationship on the one hand and human relationship on the other, so too at the center of the text is the hinge of the Sabbath commandment with its insistence on rest and restoration for every person, animal, and field, revealing that life is more important than just productivity and work. You see, the commandments as a whole present an alternative vision to life as it was in Egypt, a land where there had been little interest in relationship, regeneration, or rest. In contrast to that life of bondage, this new community refuses to define itself in terms of violence or human power. With these carefully structured precepts, God makes it possible for his people to view their new lives not as chaotic and terrifying, but as meaningful and potentially fruitful. Now, my first call as an ordained priest in the Episcopal Church was to serve as a chaplain to an elementary school. And among my duties was to teach the Hebrew Bible to young children, including, of course, the Ten Commandments. And when I first started out, I naively thought that the best way to teach them was to require them to memorize the commandments and then repeat them back to me. The next year, I learned better and how important it was to try to embed the commandments in the larger story as well as to discuss some of the values that underlie the commandments. But it wasn't until my third year of teaching that I came upon the idea of also engaging my students in the exercise of writing their own covenant to shape our classroom life together. And so we sat down as a class at the beginning of the year, and with the Ten Commandments in mind as a model, we wrote out our own community covenant. The students decided in that particular year that it was important to start each class with prayer, 
to develop norms of respect and care that would guide our interactions with one another, and in the midst of our learning, to foster a culture of support rather than competition. That was their constitution. That was their three or four commandments. So what I discovered in that process is that the best way to teach things like the Ten Commandments is not to objectify them into hollow words to be remembered and regurgitated, but to look for opportunities to embody these holy words in a shared community life. Rather than writing the commandments up on a blackboard or etching them into a monument or litigating our right to do either, Perhaps our time and energy would be better devoted to looking for creative and faithful ways to model these holy words in our lives. Our faith, after all, should be as much a way of life as it is a system of thought, as much a rhythm of life-giving practices as a collection of beliefs, as much a way of relating to others in the created world as a prescription for understanding it. To put it simply, the wisdom embodied in the Ten Commandments, which remains a cornerstone of our faith, is that Christians, just like our Jewish brothers and sisters, are called to practice what we preach, not just to preach it. Now, let me close with this observation. I confess to you that one of the things that attracted to me to this church when I first walked into the building in January of 2022 was the prominent three-panel bulletin board you have displayed in the gathering area that announces to all who come here our mission statement, come together, grow in faith, serve the Lord, along with even more specific guiding principles. Just like the Ten Commandments, these words, too, are a constitution of sorts for our community of faith. And my hope and prayer as we move forward together in our relationship is that we might show the world what it looks like to be a people who not only speak, but live God's holy words. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.